we all, without exception, have to deal with these patients, and I know all of you do too. And a lot of times in practices, these people tend to migrate to us, right? Because a lot of times the nurses are afraid to put a known cranky patient with the doc. Because the doc won't put up with them. Sometimes they'll be put with us and we don't know what we're getting into. And sometimes it's just life. I want to do, before I get too far along, do the homework and, and say that I appreciate being asked to speak. I'm honored, thank you very much, and particularly in this uh, 20th anniversary year. And I look forward to uh, those of you who are going to the banquet tomorrow night and to the mixture tonight. I look forward to meeting uh, those of you who want to come up and introduce yourself, a lot of you I know. So that's what we're talking about, dealing with difficult patients, and some of them so difficult that you have to fire. So we're going to talk about not only dealing with them, but how to get rid of them, right? I just finished sending a series of stories to a friend of mine who's writing a, a book that's composed of stories from PAs like me who've had to deal with difficult patients. I, I wish I had time to tell you all those stories. I've been involved in two hostage situations. I've been shot at. Uh, not me particularly, but the person on the end of the gun shot in my direction uh, was a person seeking drugs. I haven't had that difficult of life. Uh, but you would think so from these stories. But when you look backward 30 years, you think, my God, how did I survive all that? We have to remember some things when we deal with these patients. We have to remember that the patient's the one with the problem. And you may think, isn't that sort of obvious? And it may be, but in the places where I've worked, a lot of times the MAs and the other staff, the attitude that they take on is often, gosh, this would be a pretty good job if it weren't for the patients, you know? You know what I mean? It's like, it's like patients are intruding on their day. Uh, and I have to remind them sometimes, hey, if it were not for the patients and their problems, they wouldn't need you, right? So your job is to address their problems while keeping your sanity at the same time, hopefully. Uh, I'm next year going to retire, and I have to admit the truth, which is a lot of why I'm going to retire is not just age-related. It's also about things like you can only hear the same BS so many times. But that's my problem. That's not the patient's problem. So some people, as I said, act like if, this, if it weren't for the patients, it'd be a pretty good job. And sometimes you feel that way because the day would go a lot easier, wouldn't it? But if it weren't for the problems, they wouldn't need you and anybody could do this job. And that's why you get paid the big bucks, right? To deal with these problems. When patients complain, and here I'm going to say problems, I don't mean I have a lesion. I mean where you have true patient complaints. When patients complain, there really is a problem. Without a doubt, there is a problem. You may not, it may not, may not be obvious to you. The patient may not even be able to verbalize it, but there is one. And so the, your first task is to believe that there's a problem and not to be defensive right up front. Patients want you to believe that there's a problem. You may find out that it's foolish, that it's ill-founded, but to them it's a problem. Expectations and surprises are key things, and you know this yourself. I get to be a patient often enough. Now, I, have, I don't have huge problems at all, but I have to go see rheumatologists and uh, on occasion urologists. 
and you have your expectations and you don't particularly want surprises. That's what patients don't want. And so our job sometimes is to find out what they thought. What, this is what I hear a lot from patients. Patient goes to see the primary care provider. The primary care provider looks at their cyst and says, gosh, you need to go to dermatology to have that removed. They come to me and they're ready to have that removed, right? How many times? All of you guys hear this every day. What the patient doesn't realize is we don't know how big it is. We don't know whether it's a cyst. We don't know where it is. We don't know what they want to do. They don't know who we are, which is why, as we know, we have to have a consult, right? We have to have a consult visit, usually, unless we just want to run two hours behind all the time. We pretty much have to shoehorn you into this little five-minute consult. Patients don't know that. Their doctor said, you have a cyst, you need to go see derm and get that removed. I'm here to get it removed. Why aren't you doing that, they say. I thought you were going to do surgery today. Our people are supposed to tell them that when they call to make the appointment, right? I know you've, all of you guys run into that every day. My real doctor, and they're talking about it instead of me, their real doctor told me I had, because I'm telling them it's this and not that. We run into that, I'm sure you do too, with the issue of molluscum. It's amazing to me that a board-certified pediatrician wouldn't know the difference between molluscum and a wart, but it is so, is it not? We know this. Well, my doctor told me that they had warts. It's like, well, in a way it doesn't matter, but if we're gonna be real here, <laughs> right? We're in for accurate diagnoses when, when they can be had. So your child, in fact, does not have a wart, those 20 little clear little bumps with little holes in the middle of them are called molluscum. Well, why haven't I heard of that, they'll say. Well, the only thing new in the world is the stuff you never heard of, you know? Because we hear molluscum every single solitary day. Do we not? Can I get a witness? Every day. <laughs> we hear it. But the patient doesn't know that. Well, my doctor told me they had, they come set up for some kind of wart treatment. I didn't know, they'll say to me. Sometimes even after surgery. I didn't know I was going to have stitches. Trust me, they were told. It doesn't mean that they heard me. You mean I'm going to have a scar? They'll say after surgery or even sometimes before. Yes, indeed. And I get really graphic. I draw it out on them and I tell them this is what it's going to look like. I'm sure all of you all do the same thing. Those of you who do surgery. I bet a lot of you do cosmetic work which I don't do any of, but you have to get really graphic there too, don't you? You have to say, now listen, if we do this, here are the good things that can happen. Here are the not so good things that can happen. Patients come in with their preconceived ideas, so we're trying to avoid surprises, but we're trying to detect the surprises when we can too. They told me you were gonna fill in the blank. Do surgery on a 10 minute visit. How many times do you have people come in and they'll say, well, they told me you were going to scrape this. You know, when they, they, to them, a scrape and a biopsy are the same. You know, they don't know. It's like, well, you don't remotely have anything that needs a biopsy or a scrape. But they came with that expectation. I have occasional patients, not many, who think somehow got the idea that the way we work is we run in and we look at the patient and then we run down the hall and go, doctor, 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 come <laughs> Come look at this face, you know, it's like, and I'm not above going to get help. It's okay. After that many years that I've been in it, I don't have to do that very often. And I'm sure you, many of you don't have to either. That's 
the image that some of them have. That's their expectation. Sometimes it's the referring provider who may be at fault. And sometimes it may be the patient that just dreamed up these assumptions. Um, I bet all of you see these patients that are delusional. Delusions of parasitosis. Can I get a witness there? Yeah. They come with their expectations, right? They think, okay, he's going to find one of these and tell me what it is. And they're a tough, you could make a whole two-hour lecture out of that topic, and I know we have one here. Some patients, and this is, I've seen this back when I was in internal medicine many years ago, they look upon going to the doctor the way they would about going to the supermarket. You know, I'm here to get fill in the blank. One of those, two of those, and while you're at it, three of those. That's the way they look at medicine. Our job may well be to give them what they want, or it may be not to give them what they want. Sometimes what they want is not the right thing. Your daughter, because she has two pimples, does not need to be on isotretinoin, says me. Now, I know, I know a dermatologist who will remain unnamed. He doesn't treat acne any other way. Everybody he sees with acne gets Accutane, isotretinoin, absorica, et cetera. I don't agree with that. He's a big boy, though. Maybe that's where they got the idea is they heard their friend did that. Well, you got to see me today, and I don't do that. But we have to adjudicate that. We have to work that out. This is kind of obvious. Of course, they can be resolved. Sometimes they can't, but most can. Show them you believe. S tell them that you see there's a problem. Now, one happy thing happened to me as I've gotten older that plays into this formula. At my age, the idea of going in a patient room and sitting down first thing is very appealing. Those of you who are older can get with that. Maybe even some of you who are not so old can get with that. But it's a happy thing because it serves me well because I get down on the same level as a patient. I'm not standing over them and saying, oh, I see you here today, Mrs. Jones, for a rash. And you're looking down. No, I'm on the same level. I put the chart down and I look at them and I listen. That's helpful. There's a reason why the patient's complaining. There's a reason why, you ever have the, your MA comes out and they roll their eyes and they think, well, you're gonna enjoy this one, you know, right? And you know you're in for trouble because the patient's upset about one thing or another. This is hard to do, but you can't start by defending or arguing. And as we're gonna say, see here in a minute, you don't want to start by sitting there and working on your refutation or your argument or your rebuttal because they can see the little wheels turning because your eyes are not fixed on them. Listen to what they have to say. Let them have their say. It'll save you time in the long run. I bet it's a little foolish for me to come all the way to Indianapolis and tell you this. By the way, how many, how many in this room are from the Indiana, this area? That's your show of hands, yeah. I'm from Oklahoma City, and we have a little team there called the Thunder. We're praying for the Pacers to beat Miami, because I think our chances are better. Although we've got to beat San Antonio first. If you're a fan, you know what I'm talking about. 
let the patient have their say and avoid giving the appearance or even the substance of preparing your rebuttal just yet. Zero in on their feelings. Make your relationship. Everything I did, a lot of research for this article, and everything I saw said you need to make your relationship with that patient the target of change. Their feelings, not the disease itself. I sit down and I touch them. And it's so, and I'll sometimes put my hand on their shoulder, sometimes gently on their knee. It's shocking to them because they're not used to a doctor touching them very much. It's amazing how much force for good that can have, you know, without intruding on their space too much. You know, just say, oh, I get it. I hear what you're saying now. Letting them see and hear these nonverbals can be really, really useful. And then to restate the problem. In other words, if I understand you right, Mrs. Jones, here's what the problem is. You came in, you expected to get this, but instead you didn't get that. You expected surgery today. You didn't get it. I see where you're coming from. And how did, how did you get that idea? Well, my, my real doctor told me. My real doctor said I had a cyst and I needed to have that removed. I'm here to have it removed. Why aren't you removing it? Sometimes about that time, one of the doors to exam rooms will slam. Not slam, but you can hear it in our building. And I'll say, do you hear that sound? And they'll say, yeah. I'll say, that's the sound of my next patient being put in the room. Who expects me to be on time with them? Just as you would if you're the patient. And I don't go into a long rebuttal, but I try to explain to him, we're trying to treat that person fairly and you, and it's hard to reconcile those two sometimes. So if I understand you, Mrs. Jones, correctly, you're upset because, and it may take several cycles of this give and take, and all of you all, it's a little bit insulting for me to sit and stand up here and say these things, because all of you do this already. If you're not, though, the few of you who are not, it may help to hear this to go back and forth with them and get down where you say, okay, I get it now. I see why you're not happy. When I first read this, one of the articles that I read on this subject said very clearly, it said, always apologize. And I thought, uh, I can't buy that because it's not always my fault. But I went on to see what they're really saying is, own it if it's your fault because... We all do make mistakes sometimes. Sometimes I'll say, gosh, your scar turned out the way it did in spite of everything that I could have done for you. I don't like the way it turned out either. It's really unfortunate that it turned out that way. So I'm not really admitting fault, but I'm saying in spite of my best efforts, it turned out that way. And express regret over the situation. If it's not your fault, you can still say, I'm sorry it turned out this way and that you're upset. It's not necessarily an admission of guilt. It's an affirmation that you understand how that patient feels. A lot of these people, you're maybe the third or fourth doctor appointment that they've had that day. You, I see patients like that all the time. I bet a lot of you do too. A lot of the older patients will schedule a lot of their doctor appointments on the only day, like when they're not babysitting or they're not doing this. And you're just one in a long line. And they've had to sit out there and wait on you. It's a, it, to be a patient out there in the world today is not necessarily a pleasant 
thing. And some of them express that when they get there. Here's an important thing. This is what I've told the graduating, have told graduating classes of PAs. I say it in a little bit different words than this, but patients don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And when I say this, I'm talking to myself because I have a tendency to ramble off and, and I'm not really trying to dazzle them, but I'm trying to give them scientific explanations for what happened and why they feel the way they feel and why I did what I did or failed to do. They're really more interested to know that I just really understand that there's a problem and that they really are upset. Then I may launch off into some scientific treatise on why it happened the way it did. They're interested to know how much you care. Then maybe they can listen to you. Maybe then they can hear you. Now, there are people. I see a lot of really young people out in the audience, but I see a few who are not so much. And if you don't care, and that does happen to some PAs, Durham and other, other specialties, then that could be the problem. In fact, if you're a PA that's been out there 10 years or more and you haven't confronted the issue of burnout, you're either kidding yourself or you need to write a book and tell the rest of us how to avoid that. I've had to have my journey through that and I have my ways of dealing with burnout. One of the ways I deal with it is I write about the stuff that I see. I teach about the stuff that I see. I see it as a treasure, the case, to be some of them photographed and written about and studied about and used in lectures. And that's one of the ways I've overcome the issue of burnout. But if you don't care, if you get to the point where you just have had it up to here, then we may have identified the problem. And you wouldn't be unusual. Think about trading places with the patient. Now it's you and not them. It would help. I, I think there ought to be a law that says all PAs and all doctors and all NPs ought to have to go be a patient several times a year and have a serious, I wouldn't wish this on you, but have a serious condition. And then you'll see what it is. I went to see a urologist about two years ago. I won't bore you with the details here. Or, yeah. But as I was waiting in the room to see the urologist, he and his nurse were standing outside this flimsy little door laughing at the patient before me. And I don't, know, I don't think I heard a word the guy said. I just thought, well, that's crappy. You know, that is just, we all laugh at patients. I mean, heck, I do too. And I'm, I'm going to have the grace to not do it and within earshot of the next patient. But it would help if we'd all get to be patients. And then we would see things from their perspective, maybe. And I bet a lot of you have to be patients, or your children have to be patients. And then you see what it's like to confront this monolithic healthcare industry. So the solution can be to ask the patient what they want and give it to them if you can. That's simple. But often that's not possible. So we offer them choices and let them choose from among them. And it's like, when possible, we can offer a contract and say, well, often this surgery thing, I hate to keep coming back to that, but that's often a source of conflict for us. It's like, well, I can't do your surgery right now, 
But let me walk out here with you. And we'll talk to our scheduling ladies and we'll find a day and a time that'll suit us and you. Sometimes I walk out there and the nurse says, I mean, the scheduling lady says, well, you've got two uh, cancellations this afternoon. So you have 30 minutes you can glue together and I'll say to the patient, can you come back at 2 o'clock this afternoon? Done. There's a delay. It's not total perfect solution, but it helps. There are a lot of other conflicts you can get into besides surgical ones, but that's one of the ways you can solve that. And we all have these high maintenance patients. When I say high maintenance, I've got one guy that came in, and you've all seen this. He had scabies, but his scabies was limited to what we call the Velcro zone. Okay, here. And I don't see that all that often, but his was limited to his genital area, and just as you would expect in his history, that was the information we got. He knew exactly who he'd gotten it from. He didn't want to show me anything. These, 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 these modest men, you know. I, I thought I was going to have to yank his britches down. It's like, I need to see it all, dude, <laughs> such as it is. I need to see it. But he's high maintenance. He's turned out, he's turned out to be... I treated him with elamite, ivermectin, full court press here, a lot of education. We're on about our 10th phone call, and it hasn't even been a week yet. Okay? And what I'm going to do when I get back in the office Monday, before he has a chance to call me, I'm going to call him. Because I know he's going to be calling anyway. So I'm going to preempt his call. Seeing how this guy is. You know, you just have that certain category of patients that need a lot of hand-holding. You know? And his, by the way, yes, it was KOH proven. So it's not like we have to wonder. In fact, I offered to bring him back to my microscope and say, dude, look, here it is. No, I'll take your word for it. So calling them helps. Scheduling regular visits, even when they don't ask for it, can be helpful. Just to get them in and preempt their concerns. Calling them proactively to inquire. And, of course, keep your promises if you promise to do something for them. Sometimes I'll say to them, I don't have a foggiest idea what to do for you. I don't know what you have, but I'll tell you what. Let me take some photos, and I'll get together with the dermatologist. He's in another building in our practice. If it's serious, I'll go grab him. But if it's not all that serious, I'll say, I'll take the photos. I'll describe your case to our dermatologist. If need be, we'll bring you back. Have him come and look at you. That's my promise to you. I promise to do that. And I'll always call him with what the outcome is with the dermatologist. Often he'll say, You're look you think I know what that is? He'll say, yeah. You know, how many times? He's pretty sharp. I mean, I'm taking nothing away from him. But if I don't know, chances are pretty good he doesn't know. Although he does enlarge my differentials sometimes, and that's helpful. So let's say, though, that you reach the point. How many people in here have fired a patient? Actually, quite a number of you. Yeah. It's quite a little experience, isn't it? Yeah. So you reach the point sometimes where you just look, okay, we're not going to make this person happy. Got to fire him. Irreconcilable differences. It does not look good, and I don't want to keep messing with this patient. And they probably don't want to keep messing with me. So there's, I had to do a little research for this, because even though I have fired patients, I did it in the setting of a big clinic where the clinic itself went through the hoops 
of doing it the legal way. Where I am now, I would have to go through the hoops. That's two years ago, my wife and I would take our Christmas picture on the OU uh, campus. That's what was on our Christmas card. She's a hospice nurse. You want to talk about tough patients and families? Holy moly, I'd a whole lot rather do what I do than what she does. Sometimes a patient fires you by not keeping appointments, by not taking your advice. And you wonder why they even hang on. No, I didn't do that. I mean, how many teenagers do you have? You put on acne medicine, they'll come back in two months later, and it's like, I'll say, gosh, you don't look much better. Well, and the mom will say, well, that's because they didn't take the medicine. And you wonder why they came. It's like, what do you think I'm going to tell you to do here? You know, do that. Do what we talked about. But then your job is to find out why they didn't. And sometimes you just can't make them happy. It's best to recognize this reality of the irreconcilable differences officially with due process. Here's an important thing, especially if you're in a relatively small town. If you fire that patient, you better get ready to let the rest of the family go too, right? Because they won't be happy with you. Now, maybe they don't like Mabel, you know. And maybe they're, oh, good, that serves her right. I'll keep going to see this, the PA. But sometimes you make the whole fam family angry. Now, you haven't lost one patient. You've lost 10. You have to ask yourself, is that worth it? It's not going to create goodwill. One of the ways to get around this is if you can do it without breaching confidentiality is to get, her, get other family members involved in the decision. Say, look, I'm reached this point with Mabel. Can you talk to her and see what we can do? Because if we can't resolve this, we're going to have to get rid of her as a patient and she from us. Now, here's an important point, too. Terminate from the whole practice, not just from you, because all of you all are in practice with dermatologists, right? That's why you're here. You might fire Mabel, but you may turn around that same day or the next day and Mabel's down the hall seeing your doc. I've actually had that happen. I was not happy with the doc. Because the reason I had fired the patient, as you'll see in a minute, is because the patient was cursing out our front office staff and would not apologize. Serious cursing on the phone. This could, that could come to an end because of any number of reasons, including noncompliance, follow-up, verbal abuse, threats by patient, non-payment. Sometimes the office, I bet all of you had that situation, and the office manager comes and says, listen, you're seeing this patient, but they're not paying. They're not going to pay, and you don't want to add anything to that bill. I rarely confront the patient about that, but sometimes we'll fire them over it. Here's an example. I had an old boy. This has been uh, eight or nine years ago. A horny old man, if you'll pardon the expression, who uh, probably, probably because of his belly hasn't seen his unit in 20 years, but he's, you know, he's like, we don't know, it's like Dolly Parton in her feet, you know. It's down there somewhere, but we don't know where. He was hitting on the staff. Hey, baby, you know rubbing up against them and asking them out and, you know. And I kept telling him, it's like, 
and they would come and tell me, and I would sometimes witness it. I'd say, you can't do that. Don't come in here and do that. These ladies deserve more respect than that. And I want you to go, to, go apologize. He would make these comments to the MAs. He kept doing it, kept doing it, refusing to apologize or to stop. Well, we can't have that. He's going to have to go take his business elsewhere, you know? Here's another example. This is the case that I was just referencing a while ago. We had a mother called up and for her two teenage sons, 115, 117, we want emergency acne appointments. You ever get those? Yeah, emergency. And demand it. And our ladies, I heard part of the conversation on the phone, they complied. They said, well, how would 2 o'clock this afternoon be okay? No, I want you to get off your effing ass right now, and I want to And some serious, I couldn't hear that part, but they told me about it later and just berated them, even though they had complied and even though they'd gotten the kids' appointments. So I tried to call the mother back and asked for an apology for her. And then and only then would I see the, the boys. She wouldn't pick up on the line. So I knew her husband. I called him up. This is a touchy situation. Called up the husband and said, Guy, I don't know how to tell you this, but I just got to tell you what happened. So pass the word on. Well, he said, she wouldn't do that. He said, she wouldn't use those kinds of words. It's like, well, I went back to our people. I said, were you telling the truth? Did she really say those things? Yeah. I said, we can't have that. I said, I'm going to have to fire her as a patient. Later that same day, I saw the patient and the boys down the hall in this rather large clinic we were seeing the dermatologist. So I thought, well, I made a mistake. I should have gone down and talked to him, not so much to ask his permission, but just to say, we're not going to see her or those boys anymore. He never said a word about it. I said, I asked his nurse, I said, did he confront her? No. He's a nice guy, the dermatologist. He's just wimpy. You know, some of them are just wimpy. Me, not so wimpy. You know, I'm not going to, I'm going to go a long way to take up for my staff. The MAs get paid pitiful money. If you think about living on, I don't know how, they, how much they get paid where you are, where we are, if they make 14 bucks an hour, they're doing their top dollar. You ever try to live on $14 an hour? I mean, recently? Man, they don't deserve that. They deserve more respect than that. Now, we had another patient come in. This woman was a secretary to uh, the family that owned all the medical uh, establishment in town. I can't name the names without giving away their identity, but there's a whole clinic and hospital system in Tulsa, which is where I was. And the person after whom that system is named, his secretary comes in and says to me, I have really oily skin. I really, really, really hate this. Not a drop of acne and wanted to be on Accutane. And uh, I said, well, I can't do the Accutane for that. I'd have to lie because you really don't have acne. 
And I said, it's only going to help you for a short period of time. I said, I will go and talk to the dermatologist and see what he's willing to do. There wasn't any good answer for her, but she threatened to make trouble. Trouble meaning I'm going to go to my boss and you'll regret not giving me what I want. So it's kind of, that's, I've only had that happen one time. Uh, I don't know what to do for women or men with terribly oily skin that other than isotretinoin that's going to do any good. You, we all know the things you can put on there. It'll dry them out temporarily. We even talked about spironolactone. She did, uh, that's not what she wanted. She wanted Accutane. So fired her as the patient. They were as big a problem as the, the problem, you know. She's just going to get temporary relief. Uh, she was going to be hitting me up for, she was going to be one of those that's going to be hitting me up for refills on this. And uh, I know PAs who do chronic isotretinoin. They get each other to prescribe it for them. And then they rat hole it and they'll take one pill a week to keep their acne at bay. Imagine that. But I don't have anything to do with that. I don't want to get in that much trouble. Now here's the, here's the delusional patient. I don't have a boatload of, del how many people have delusions of parasitosis patients? Just about everybody in the room, yeah. They're toughies, aren't they? They're toughies. Uh, I'm talking about the truly delusional ones that come in and they just are real sure they have a bug. Occasionally you can catch them before they go around the bend, you know. But most of the time, by the time they get to you, you're like the fifth person they've seen that month for the same problem. And they've already been elamided and ivermectin and never does any good. There's no way to make these people happy. They need to see, see psych, but it's a rare person that has that, that wants to see them, that wants to go see psych because they think they're being dismissed. Did Dr. Koo talk about delusions? I think he speaks on Saturday about delusions of parasitosis, I believe. I wish I could be here and hear that. I'd like to hear what he has to say about that. Dr. John Koo is uh, considered to kind of be the, the psychoderm guru, at least by me. So firing that patient's families can occasionally help, but usually they're not that much help in terms of getting the patient exactly what they need. So if you're actually going to terminate them, you have to decide, are you the sole source of their care in that community for that problem? If you are, you have to arrange care with another provider who can do the same thing. Most states, that's the rule. You cannot terminate directly or solely for having HIV, AIDS, pregnancy, or disability. Legal opinion may be needed. So your practice probably is associated or has been associated from time to time with an attorney. It might be worth consulting with them about this issue. You got to send a letter. Got to request a return receipt and retain copies. The letter doesn't have to be all that complicated. It just spells out what you're doing. You don't have to spell out why you're doing it because the patient already knows. You have to resend it, or actually you don't have to, but you ought to resend it before the effective date. Again, keeping copies, documenting everything that you do. 
A specific reason to terminate is not required in most states. I don't see anything wrong with saying why, but you really don't have to do that. You've got to give an effective date. Offering alternative sources for care, as we said, and offering to transfer medical records to the provider of their choice. If you're in a real small town, and I bet a few of you are, that can be a problem because there may not be any derms around that can do what you can do. As of the date, the termination date, alternative care is the responsibility of the patient if it's available locally. Refills, you have to remind the patient that refills are, are no longer going to be available. <coughs> we occasionally get crossways with patients about pain medicine. I try not to go down that road at all, but occasionally we get into that, and that's when they're going to want refills. Remember I said for group practices, you have to terminate for all providers and not just one. So you've got to get your doc and the other PAs, nurse practitioners involved. Otherwise, first thing you know, just as it happened in my case, you look down the hall and it's like they're there and they're like, well, we're just going to ignore him. Talking about me. We'll just go on. Uh, shame on me for not telling them. Document each step. Reiterate necessity, the necessity for patient to arrange alternative care. They say in the stuff that I looked up, it says you do not give the patient the names of specific alternative providers. What I've done is given the name of clinic. Now, you can get your care perhaps at this, at this derm clinic where they have five or six dermatologists. I would suggest contacting them rather than a name because you wouldn't want to wish these people, unless you had somebody that you really hated, right? We, we have a kind of a standing joke in Oklahoma. There's one PA that we're all good friends with. And every time we see him, we always tell him about our delusional patients that we're sending to him. He knows we're kidding. I wouldn't do that to anybody. So problem patients will come along despite our best efforts. We have to sit down with them and let them have their say and really listen and restate their complaints. Keep in touch proactively with those who need it. Try to get in touch with how the patient really feels. Let them have their say. When termination is inevitable, as we said, you send the letter by registered mail, resend it before the effective date, document all communication, terminate from all providers in the practice, and seek legal advice as needed ahead of time before it comes up. There are some silver linings. There are some good aspects to terminating a patient, besides obvious ones. Sometimes the patient gets to have the kind of provider they want. If you want to look at medicine as a safe way, as a supermarket, then you don't want to come see me. You want to go elsewhere where they'll deal with you like that. And you can go in and say, I'll take one of those, two of those, and while you're at it, three of that. Patients who like your style can stay with you, and those who don't, they can move on. Over time, you'll build a practice of people that like your style. And you'll get rid of the people, maybe not by termination, but you'll get rid of the ones who don't. Staff will feel supported. And 
Trying to terminate a patient sometimes gets the patient's attention in a way that nothing else can do. And they'll come to you hat in hand and say, gosh, I didn't know you felt that seriously about it. Let's talk. Now, in case you're wondering what the heck that is, it's not really the light at the end of a tunnel. That's the inside of a morning glory. Blown up. Took that picture in Connecticut. I went up there to give a talk, and that just jumped out at me. Now, we're at the end of this part of the talk. If anybody has questions, they, we have mics on the aisles. You can get up and ask me. I wouldn't hold myself out as a legal expert on this topic, but I have gone to some trouble to do some research. I'll do the best I can. Thanks for your attention. Thanks. <laughs>